Yo, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Nick and Griff Show. Today is Saturday, May 21st. It is 9.05 a.m. Griff, how was your week? I know you were a little under the weather here the past couple of days. How are you feeling today? Feeling well, well enough to get up this morning and do this, Nick, you know what I'm saying? So pretty good. That's good. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a long week of battling work and not feeling your best and powering through it and all those kinds of good things. How was your week? Man, it was good. Uh, we got a lot of good projects wrapped up and uh, got some time freed up to tie up some of those loose ends, which is nice. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of the back half of the week was a little bit more chilled out and uh, looking forward to probably the next couple of weeks. Um, got some some uh, a little bit more freed up time to to get more of those loose ends tied up and uh, get things finished up, get projects ready to start. And so I'm um, excited, excited for the next couple of weeks for sure. And uh, man, always got good stuff going. It's it's fun to, you know, my job is very, very much focused on the future. And so it's fun to to to, uh, to speculate out to, to where we could be, um, what we could have coming down uh, the stream. And so, yeah, it, everything's going well. It was It was another good week, man. It's a good week for Tulsa, Oklahoma, like we were saying. I mean, you got the mm-hmm. PGA Championship. I know everybody's yep. kind of moving there. Huge Bitcoin community in Tulsa, which I think is the majority of our listeners to this podcast, which is pretty cool. I wonder where Tulsa is going to be in five, ten years. I mean, it really could be a pretty massive city if you think about it. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's been it's been you know it's been kind of a hidden gem uh, is what I've seen what I've heard just kind of around the, uh, around and through the grapevine. Um, but it's, uh, I think people are starting to find it a little bit more, you know, I think there's, there's definitely more people moving here. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been a place where a lot of people have come to, to kind of escape, you know, to find freedom, to find, uh, you know, a, a, a popping little town that's got a lot of awesome little venues, a lot of great restaurants, a lot of great, indoor outdoor activities i mean there's uh there's a lot of great stuff happening here in tulsa and, and of course you got oklahoma city that's about an hour away from here hour and a half depending on where you're at um and they've got even more amenities over there oklahoma city is bigger than tulsa um and then uh and then all around this part of the country you know you've you've obviously got all the nature and wildlife and you know open land and all that kind of stuff as well and you know great uh Great lakes for uh, for skiing, for tubing, for fishing. You know, you got hunt, a lot of hunting around these these parts. Of course, that's all over the country, I guess. But um, you know, I love this part of the country, man. Are you a big hunter? Uh, I I used to be and do still go. I'm not so um, I'm not so like religious about it anymore. Uh, but I do still enjoy it. I love getting out in a stand early in the morning when it's cold and being able to sit out there and, and, and see the sunrise and hear the birds and super quiet. I mean, it's, it's Something. definitely, definitely right. some time to, to kind of reflect and think about things for sure. And kill something. No, I mean like, and kill something. Yeah. If I can, if I can, what if you, I can see, huh? What do, you get, what do you get up early in the morning to kill? Deer, white tail deer. Yeah. Deer hunting. Ooh. Aren't those Go tough? Out. Huh? Aren't those tough? Cause they're fast. They move quickly. The whole thing uh no to, i mean like if you're i mean like you know i mean th- there are situations where like you know a deer may be running but typically typically you're you're hunting in a way where you're not seen where they're not running from you um so uh 
yeah, typically you're going to find a walking deer or a group of deer and uh, take one, take one out of the group that you like. And, and then you get to have some great meat um, and uh, great fellowship to kind of go around the whole thing. That's really the, the, the most enjoyable part, but yeah, you can't, you can't beat the fresh meat, man. Um, there, there were times I remember whenever I was younger, we'd go out to our land and um, you know, we, we typically would go for the full, for a full 10 days. So we'd go like the weekend that the, that the season open season started the full week. And then the weekend after, and, um, and man, I mean, at certain point during the week, you know, we'd have three or four or five deer, um, cleaned up and cut up and we would take this fresh meat right off of the animal and salt and pepper it, cook it over the fire. Dude, you can't beat it. It's really good. Wow. All right. Uh, in other news, I did meet at the Tulsa Bitcoin meetup uh, last Tuesday. Um, I met a guy from Sacramento. Well, I guess he's from, I think he's from LA, he said. Um, lived in Sacramento for five years, or 15 years, sorry, and uh, moved here, uh, I think he said somewhere right around a year ago and said that he loves Tulsa, which is kind of cool. I was like, dude, you got to talk to Griff. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh... I mean, I don't think I'd be a hard convince on that end. I think it's a lot of other factors that are preventing me from leaving Sacramento at this moment in time. But uh, I don't doubt it. Like we're saying, there's a lot of good things going on in Tulsa. I can't really say I've heard a lot of good things going on here in uh, Northern California, other than if you came out here and you saw Tahoe, which is like my work drive, like once or twice a week. Um, Yeah pretty i have seen know. pictures janae's been there multiple times i have seen tons of pictures and it looks beautiful absolutely beautiful out there i mean it's it's definitely different the bay area is really really cool i mean obviously um you'd like to see it run a little bit more efficiently is that a, an okay word to use there you can um, say conservatively more freedom we want more freedom-minded things going yeah, on absolutely. i just i just don't understand why California this is america I just don't understand why California is uh, so obtuse to just getting something new in here, whether it be conservative or actually I believe there's a libertarian candidate who has a lot of money behind him here Mm -hmm. in this upcoming election, which would be really cool. Um, I believe he's a doctor as well. So it'd be cool to get some get some change in California, because, I mean, it is the fourth largest economy in the world, just this state alone. Um, and if you'd like to know some other cool things here in Northern California, it used to be like the asparagus capital of the world. There used to be a lot of agriculture up here. Um, and it's since been outsourced to other countries. So the question of whether can America, can we produce everything ourselves? Yeah. California probably could alone just to let everybody know, but we're not being run, um, as effectively and the world is more globalized now. So if you can get it for 10 cents cheaper in some other country, uh, we tend to take that deal for a lot of reasons. Um, but which is, you know, it's, it's interesting. You bring up, you bring up that piece. So I was listening to, I listened to a decent amount of, uh, safe Adina Moose's podcast. Um, and and I'll forget the name of it, but, um, listened to a decent amount of that, uh, over the past couple of days. And he had, uh, an episode where they were talking about how fiat really infiltrates all of these different areas of life. And in uh, and, and one of the pieces that they were talking about was uh, was you know as as fiat continues to erode over time, that inherently heightens our time preference, 
and heightening our time preference means that we've got to either we've got to either make more money to live the life that we want to live or we've got to constrict mm-hmm. our spending and reduce our lifestyle to live on what we're currently making and uh, and typically um, I think I think that typically a lot of people are constricting their lifestyles um, and or you know just kind of living on the uh, you know couple of percent pay raises every year that are not keeping up with the with the rising cost of living right and uh, and this inherently then pushes uh, you know you talk about the infiltration of the federal government uh, large corporations into uh, into bed together to work together so that they can all make money, right? I mean, uh, if, if we just talk about business, whether it's a small business or a, a huge multinational corporation, um, the incentive is to be profitable and to be as profitable as possible. Um, and in a fiat economy, when all of this, uh, this buying power, purchasing power is being siphoned off and leaked out, um, it's uh, it's interesting. It pushes people into having to spend less money or make more money. Um, it, but it also on the on the making more money side, your time preference being heightened every single time that inflation ekes up a little bit more. Um, it further disincentivizes you to go out and produce and make more. Right. Because, oh, I'll go out and produce and make more. But what I'm making may be. Uh, in nominal terms, I think that that's the correct term. In absolute dollar values, maybe you're making more, but your purchasing power maybe stays the same or decreases, right? So it's, you know, I mean, we, I don't know how many times we talk about incentive structures, but, you know, the incentive structures are, dude, they're all the way screwed up. Pretty much only 100% agree with you. I can only say how many <laughs> times, like, I have had conversations with Sierra where it's like, we have to cut back on this or that or the other thing and like sometimes i'm making more money right and like some of that is just personal finance you know i want to invest more of my money than i spend you know that's always that's actually always the goal um but there are a lot of things where you're just like yeah let's maybe not do this just because it's getting really expensive due to the heightened inflation and it's a really sad thing kind of like you're mentioning it's like you're not actually doing it for any reason other than the fact that the money is getting crappier so your life's getting crappier. Um, and that's cool. just what it is because wages never keep up with inflation. That's something that, you know, so very- this past, uh, this past Tuesday, uh, at the Tulsa Bitcoin meetup, we had, um, Joel from untapped growth. I believe he is at untapped growth on Twitter. I'm not hundred percent sure, but, um, man, this guy's presentation was freaking incredible. If you go to untappedgrowth.com, um, you can see it in there. Uh, it's Citadel theory. Um, and I'm not going to get into it because we'll have him on the podcast at some point here um, down the next several weeks. Um, and he'll kind of he'll have an opportunity to go through this whole thing. But, dude, it's so cool. Um, but he was talking about as as the cost, the actual real cost due to inflation of of real food. Right. We talk about real food, not this industrial sludge that they're pushing at McDonald's and wherever else right not that stuff i'm talking oh, real food don't hate as, don't be hating like that on the mickey hey, d's what do you i mean? like i like mickey d's just as much as the next guy but it's not good food for you and, and you cannot no. disagree with that <laughs> um, i don't i don't think so but if you're if you're pretty good on your workout regimen i think that sometimes um just getting those calories in you as well is kind of a an advantage to not okay that's all i'm saying um, and it's uh-huh. fantastic. Uh-huh. And don't take away my hot and spicy McChickens. Don't take away <laughs> my breakfast sandwiches. 
Oh my goodness. We could have a whole podcast where I talk to you about fast food and we just start rating things. Um, but anyway, <laughs> can you so, keep going? So that, that aside, I know that you agree with me. I know yeah. that you do deep down, but, but I do agree with you. Cause I, because I like myself a McGangbang here and there every once in a while as well. So, <laughs> you know, we, you and I in college, we had our fair share at McDonald's, man. Uh, absolutely. We'd show up there. Can I get three of those, two of these, six of those? And, uh, and I'll take a, uh, I'll take an apple pie and I'll take a McFlurry too. Man, Which one do you want? We were, uh, put the we in, in that shape. sucker, man. <laughs> we were in shape though. I mean, like we, we were, we were, back we were college days. athletes, dude. Man. So that, that said, that, all that all that aside, as the cost of real food increased at the same time, and, and I haven't done all this research, Joel has, and he'll have to come on and explain all this stuff. But then they started pushing and, and propagating all of, this, uh, all of this information to push people toward fast food, toward food that was cheaper because mm-hmm. that was another way to hide the inflationary tendencies of the federal reserve that that control fiat and i'm telling you you're making faces now just wait till this guy talks. no i mean so is is it a slight bit of a conspiracy theory in the respect that he's saying mcdonald's created because of the destruction of the dollar no no not created it's all about incentive structures right it's it's uh uh, hey it costs too much to do this we need to do this to be profitable but it also, at the same time, there's all these other things, fa- all these other factors coming together to push people toward that. Really interesting stuff. I'll send you the link to the to the website, uh, to Joel's website. It's untappedgrowth.com, I believe. Um, and he's got he's got a, a 45 minute presentation that they've got on there on Citadel Theory. Um, so go check it out. You have to go check it out, everybody. If you're listening, go check it out. Um, I, I might post something on on Twitter about that here in a little bit. But we'll have him on the episode or on the podcast here at some point. Um, Griff, let's hop into this market check, man. It's, uh, it's again, still been a very strange time over the past couple of weeks. Um, let's see uh, why retail fell and Boeing climbed, yada, yada, yada. Um, I mean, we, we saw another big drop off in Bitcoin again this week. Um, so, you know, th- we're, we're sitting around this $30,000 $30, mark and then we fall off to to 29 again and then we come back up to the 30s and then we fall off again real sharp um you know i, I don't i don't really know what i don't know how to make sense of all this stuff like it, it is funny because like in the short term you know it's like all this price action is going on i i don't know what this means dude uh the good news is is the long term like this is this is what we're looking at long term right like i mean it, it's it's funny uh you zoom out and you see all these Huge climb, crash. Big climb here, crash. Huge climb, crash. Huge climb, crash. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what this stuff means, man. But uh, for you guys that are just listening here, the price right now currently is sitting at $29,302.23. Um, we're seeing very similar stuff, as you can imagine, in the S&P. Um, they, had, uh, they, were, they were sitting around 4000 just north of 4000 and uh, continually fell off throughout the week and is now sitting currently at $3,901. Um, dude, we, Kyle and I were looking at uh, um, the, the charts kind of mirrored over top of each other for the S&P, um, the NASDAQ, and the Dow Jones yesterday. And, uh, man, it's interesting to see how, obviously, the, the charts are extremely similar. They almost look the exact same, except 
the Dow Jones grows a little bit, the S&P grows a little bit more, and the NASDAQ is like way higher. Now, of course, the NASDAQ is more volatile, so it grew a lot more, but the crash is also uh, significantly more. Um, but again, you know, I mean, look at look at the Dow Jones over the week. Look how look how that looks. Look at yeah. the Nasdaq. Look how that looks. Look at the S and P. They all look the exact same, dude. It's crazy. And it's and Bitcoin is is similar, but not quite. I mean, it kind of starts high. I don't know. You know, Bitcoin's um, more volatile. So typically, when we start these trading days, it will be like ten minutes before everything else starts going up or down. Bitcoin has yeah. like a higher volatility of that up and down. Um, yeah. But I don't know, man, like at the end of the day, I've been thinking about this a lot. Bitcoin is about like the circular economy that is being created in the Bitcoin network right now is way more, way, way, way more important than the dollar price of Bitcoin. I mean, just when you think about it at the very, very end of the day, we want to be able to spend our Bitcoin anywhere. Right. Like we want to exchange money with marketplaces, brick and mortar shops, whatever, whatever it might be on Shopify online, we want to just be able to spend our money, right? But we also just want to be able to save our money in an economy that doesn't inflate. We want a currency, we want a dollar that doesn't get printed anymore. Why? Because not all of us have 100 homes, okay? We don't have enough assets to combat inflation. So we need a currency that doesn't inflate. That creates a much more level playing field for really the entire world. And so I've been thinking a lot about it. It's like, yeah, like, sure, it sucks, I guess, that the dollar price of Bitcoin goes up and down and up and down. And yes, if Bitcoin were going to a million dollars tomorrow, would I sell a little bit to like go exchange for something in the in the fiat world? Yeah, because the fiat world is currently the biggest economy, right? Like that is the biggest economy today is paper, paper everywhere. Everybody's using some form of fiat currency. But very soon, I mean, with guys like Jack Mahler's, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, um, mm-hmm. things are going to happen where the certain the economy that is Bitcoin, you're going to be able to spend your Bitcoin a lot of places. And do I recommend spending your Bitcoin while you can spend uh, fiat? No, I think you should spend as much fiat as you have until they stop accepting it, which I'm telling you, the higher these gas prices go, the closer we are getting to that kind of point. But it's really, Nick, this this whole thing is about one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And the, the further Bitcoin goes down, but increasingly mm-hmm. as the economy of it is growing, the network of it is growing, it's like the dollar price does just does not matter. Now, obviously, you want to save your Bitcoin. Why do you want to save it? Because it is an economy that is growing. So you're basically are getting real estate in one of the smallest countries in the world today. And it could be the biggest country in the world and not that long from now, because Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is like a country, but it's only like for economics. So I don't know. I mean, like, it's kind of interesting. Save your Bitcoin. But I wouldn't get too worried about the dollar price of it because there's only 21 million. It's the only hard sound money available to us today. Gold is a... I don't even want to say it. it's not very close, but it's the second best, right? There's other yeah, commodities. I, would, I agree with that, yeah. But there will never be a network where you can spend gold. There's never going to yeah. be some network where you can go around and spend gold coins, guys. Like, that's why gold is worthless at this point. Nobody cares. It's yeah. a digital age. And even with all of these governments, you know, ever impacting society, it 
very much so makes people realize the internet is ever much more important, right? Because it's like they can't always control what happens digitally and they for sure can't control what happens on the Bitcoin network. So uh, that's mm-hmm. my little spiel for one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin today because it is and it's only getting more and more important. You know, you know what's interesting, uh, and I was I was reading a little bit um, on Bitcoin Magazine um, about the about the increased strength of the U.S. dollar compared to all of the other major currencies in the world, and also simultaneously the contraction of the United States GDP. I think the um, I think the assumption or uh, I guess forecast was an expansion in the GDP of like 1.1%. And it actually contracted, got smaller by 1.4%. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's wild. And, and what does that mean? I, I, I'm not hundred percent sure, dude. Like I was, I was looking at some of the macro trends and, you know, this, this metric and that metric and um, these charts and those charts and this fits together with that thing. Dude, like it's like reading like a different language. I don't know how to make sense of it, you know? Um, and some of this geopolitical stuff is like, if, if you don't spend hours and hours and hours getting into it and understanding it over a period of time, dude, it's like, it's so damn difficult to make sense of, of, of the, the headlines even. Right. I mean, you, you obviously, just like with anything else, in order, in order to really understand something, you've got to sp- spend time reading and listening and, you know, diving into what the content is um, in order to really understand something. Um, and I'm excited to have Joe Consorti on here uh, in a couple of weeks to talk about some of the macro trends, what he's seeing in, uh, in, in as far as those things. I, I don't know if I told you this or not, but he's an analyst now, like a Bitcoin macro analyst. Um, so I'm excited to have to hear his takes on some of these things that are happening in the markets. Um, but yeah, to go back to your point, man, uh, it's interesting, like the personal finance side, the short-term price action of Bitcoin. If you're, if you're investing money, I say investing, I don't want to say investing. If you're saving money in Bitcoin, if you're buying Bitcoin with money that you may need tomorrow, you, you're doing it wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, right. I, I know for myself, I'm putting money in Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin with money that I am intending to save for the long term. It's not money that I need in, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a couple of years. This is money that I'm, I'm saving later on down the line, way down the line. If you're saving money that you may need in a couple of weeks, man, you, I don't know, man. I, I, that's, that's a little scary to me. But um, Bitcoin is a savings account. It's more or less an investment, but it's a savings account. But at the same time, into present day in these banks savings accounts are supposed to accrue interest right bitcoin is just the best the best savings account there is because potentially i mean it could accrue some very very serious uh i guess savings interest if you want to put it that way over the next 10 years and that's why we put our money in it because more and more people are going to come in but yet no more bitcoin is going to be created just because people want to buy it that means there's yeah. going to be a very, very, very high demand. And there's really like, I guess, a finite. Well, there is a finite supply. So yeah. high demand, finite supply, not to mention. Number nobody, go up. Nobody really understands it yet. Um, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. only going one place. So I think we should get our guest on here, though, and get Grim. some of his thoughts. You want to do a little I'm introduction? Excited. I'm excited about this guy. I've been anticipating this guest for, God, I mean. I guess b- before he was officially on the books, 
uh, I was, I, I, just, I, I've had tons of conversations with this guy. Um, uh, I, I work with Ascend Commercial Builders here in Tulsa. I've worked there for eight, nine months at this point. And uh, man, me and this guy, we just hit it off right out of the gates. Um, it, it, and it's fun too, because um, he's very well versed in the geopolitical side of things um, that's happening all over the world. He also worked in banking through the 2008 financial crisis. Um, he's had his hand in, in some politics formally. Um, so he's kind of seen that realm of things, right? He's also uh, with our company, he's the accounts uh, or uh, the accounting, uh, the finance, the contracts guy, the legal guy um, that we go to for all of those sources. Dude is super sharp. And uh, we have had tons and tons and tons of conversations over lunch. And, um, you know, at the end of the days, we have conversations about all this stuff, Bitcoin included. Um, what's good about Bitcoin? What are the potential issues about Bitcoin? And has opened my mind to several things that I had not thought about previously. Um, everybody give a, a nice warm welcome to our guest this week, Kyle Jackson. Kyle, good morning, man. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Nice Saturday morning. Got, thanks. Got my coffee going. So, so everybody's ready. Everybody has coffee. I just finished up go. here. I'm, I'm primed and ready to go this morning. Awesome. Let me tell you. Um, Kyle, right out of the gates, I got to ask you a question here. So we were just mentioning, uh, or I, I just mentioned this increase in strength of the dollar price compared to all these other currencies around the world. And also the simultaneous contraction of the the GDP. What could this possibly mean? How, how What does this mean as far as a global economy goes? So when we talk about that, one of the things you need to understand about what happened after the 2008 market crash, when they dropped interest rates locally. So they took interest rates basically to zero. Okay. So um, one of the things where people were investing in the United States is because they had a good rate of return. When our interest rates are high, they like to have money in the, in the States. They like to invest here because they can get a good return on their, on their money. So mm -hmm. what happened when we dropped our uh, interest rates centrally down to virtually zero, a lot of that market capital went and developed markets overseas. So mm -hmm. like Brazil, Indonesia, places like that, they started borrowing money in U.S. dollars. And so now if we have an inflation problem and our the value of the dollar is staying steady, but they're also from their supply chain issues, they're having massive decreases in their uh, economies, which is making their um, it, their currency versus yeah. our currency worth considerably less. Now mm -hmm. they're paying more to repay yeah. the debt that they've borrowed in U.S. dollars. Yeah. And so that problem is going to create a bigger problem overseas when we mm -hmm. start raising interest rates yep. to try and combat inflation. So now yep. it's going to even make that problem even worse because mm -hmm. now they're going to continue to have because they they borrowed it in U.S. dollars. So they're going to have to convert their local currency to U.S. dollars to pay this debt. And since yep. their <clears throat> their currency is worth considerably less now versus the U.S. dollar, and that interest rate is going up because they're, most of those investments are not on um, direct, like not on a set interest rate. It's based on the prime rate. 
That's how most yeah. of those contracts are done, just like a credit card. Just most lines of credit are set up that way. Yeah. So this cost is going up. This value is going down. So it's going to create mm. a lot more economic issues worldwide that then we're going to feel from our supply chain continuing to crumble in that in that manner. Which, as far as global trade, uh, that makes it significantly more difficult for other countries to trade with us. Uh, because, uh, I mean, if, if you think about just a super simple example, you know, American company A, uh, they they buy products from manufacturer over in Europe, somewhere else in the world or whatever. Um, it's now more expensive. Well, maybe that's a little backwards. I, I think I got it. Backwards so the, the inverse, the inverse may be true where yeah. it produces a situation where to find value in their investment their money is coming back to the United States, but it has a greater buying power overseas, but a smaller mm-hmm. buying power locally. So yeah. they go and buy up the uh, manufacturing facilities at discounted prices because their local currency is deflated. Yeah. But what it's going it, to, it's still going to end up in the same scenario where the exchange from there to here is going to be difficult unless yeah. they find ways to, Unless they find ways to cut costs or improve the manufacturing process, mm-hmm. we're still going to be be in the same same boat that we are currently, where we have rising prices in in goods because our inflation is is so high. Um, yeah. It's funny the uh, the government has decided that the way that we convince people to combat this is uh, you just don't have to buy stuff. Just. just <laughs> That's that's how we get that's how we get diesel prices um, down. Is we stop buying stuff, so there's fewer boats and fewer planes and fewer fewer uh, trains and and fewer semis on the road or over the seas. Um, and it was funny the somebody was pointing out like, you mean a, a recession? Like you're literally advocating for us to go into a recession to combat inflation. Well, so so we were we were. Oh, you, you go, Griff. You go, Griff. No, I was just going to say, my natural next question for some of those things is the ruble. Do you have any notes or as to why it's now, I guess it's like at a seven-year high, right? And they stopped circulating the U.S. dollar and Russia, I Redemption. believe, like not that, not that long ago, right? So is that because they're a commodity-rich country and they don't really need uh, U.S. dollars to be stable? You know, they also have oil. Um, and the most recent thing, I think, is wheat, right? They're obviously trying to cut off Ukraine's ability to produce wheat. So now they're the only ones that have wheat. Um, what does that kind of mean for the U.S. dollar in terms of its power over the world if Russia is showing that it doesn't really need it to be a successful economy? Um, so it will exacerbate the problem. So it, one of the main reasons that there's so much us currency in the market is because the petrodollar we set a standard i think in the 80s 70s or 80s that the um global exchange of oil would be done on the us dollar so all these central banks around the world have us dollars to exchange oil and natural gas that is the way they have it set up so when russia decided we have the goods we don't need the dollar. They have shifted a paradigm that is very dangerous for the U.S. 
Mm -hmm. um, and the, they're not a very small country, so we can't just go drone strike uh, Putin and call it a day. No, I mean, seriously, right. that's what we've done in the so, past in many other countries. So, you know, that's that's very accurate. Now, the thing that is interesting is Europe. Europe kind of forced our hand in a certain manner to put us in this position. Um, but the U.S. government facilitated it as well. Um, the pipelines that come into Europe from um, Russia, they carry natural gas and oil, the Nord Stream pipelines. Um, they are the main avenue that those fossil fuels come into that country or into that region. Um, and they have been pushing an agenda that is removing more um, cleaner energy. They've been shutting down nuclear power plants and they have become almost specifically reliant on the oil and natural gas from Russia. And the oil and natural gas that comes in from there during the previous administration there was a there were sanctions on the completion of the Nord Stream tube pipeline, which did not allow for them to complete that pipeline and put it in in service. And that was what led us to the ability of the United States to export um, natural gas and things like that to Europe and to to become a net exporter of energy. Uh, okay. We were still importing some oil, but we were the amount of natural gas, liquid natural gas that we were exporting actually offset that to make it where they claimed we were energy independent, but we weren't. It was that we were exporting more oil or exporting more energy than we were importing. Is there any reason why we keep uh, handcuffing Alaska in them? Um, environmentalists. Is that really the main, would be the main sticking point there? Wow. Yes. So I've always found this interesting that the United States has the cleanest methods and has, has the most regulation to be able to produce goods in the world. We are the cleanest when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to production of oil, natural gas, when it comes to uh, processing those, when it, we have the cleanest methods around the world, we're required to, by our federal government and the EPA. Yet, instead of investing and paying the price for us to mine fossil fuels and us to get the minerals that we have in Alaska, in Montana, in Idaho, in all these places where there are vast um, natural resources that we need to be able to do all of the things we do, create microchips, the be able to uh, manufacture, but instead we allow it to be strip mined overseas. We decide that having it done in Central Africa or out of uh, Taiwan, or uh, we decided that we've decided that that's uh, that's better instead of being able to do it here, perfect the process, and drop drive the prices down. Well, I mean, we, we were kind of talking about this uh, yesterday, Kyle, um, you know, and you had mentioned it a second ago, like all, all of the climate change crisis conversations ultimately lead to the solution is, 
well, just, just don't consume anything. Just don't consume any energy, right? Just don't consume any energy. And, and then the reference was eat bugs and live in a pod and don't go anywhere. Right. Um, you know, uh, I was listening again to, to reference safe Adina Moose's podcast, um, uh, was listening to him yesterday and he's talking about, Oh, this push to, to green renewable energy and electric cars. And then, and then maybe you've got like a, an electric car that can only drive, you know, a certain amount of miles, right. Because of its batter, battery, um, capacity. So then, Oh, you don't need to go anywhere, you know, further than 20 minutes away from home because that consumes less energy. It ultimately leads to let's just consume less energy, eat bugs and, uh, and live in a pod. And, uh, and, and that, that's not the, that's not the answer, right? It's like, Consuming energy allows us to stay warm when it's cold and winter outside. Consuming energy allows us to not burn to death whenever it's super hot in the summers. Uh, consuming energy allows us to wash our clothes. You know, uh, if I mean, if that's the conversation, like let's get rid of all the washers and dryers. Why, why are we not hand washing all of our clothes and hanging them out on drying racks? And why are we not hand washing our dishes? And uh, how much power and, and energy consumption goes into uh, plumbing for, for your home so that you can, uh, so you can run water in the sink. Well, we don't need that. Why don't we just have, you know, a, a, a well where we pump, pump water out, you know, like, why don't we just utilize that system? Uh, it, it seems like that, that, that answer is such a stupid answer. It, it seems like the better answer is to make more efficient what we're doing. Like we, we can't consume less energy. If we consume less energy, uh, we we then de- downgrade civilization. Uh, the more energy that we consume, uh, it, it seems to it seems to correlate with increases in living standards, increases in just civilization in general. I, I I would think right now. Now, is there an inefficient way to consume that energy? Absolutely. Yeah. Is there a more efficient way to consume that energy? Absolutely. Uh, a great a great example of this right is um, is uh, the current legacy financial system and Bitcoin, right? A lot of people talk about this energy consumption FUD and they say, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin consumes as much energy as, you know, the, the country of Sweden. It's like, yeah, yeah, it absolutely consumes as much energy as Sweden. And let's talk about how much energy consumption that the legacy financial uh, uh, system consumes, right? You guys were talking about the petrodollar earlier. How much does it cost? How much energy do we consume in the industrial uh, military complex to protect those trade routes. How much energy do we consume in all of the, the, the brick and mortar bank locations? How much does it cost for the HVAC and for the electric um, and for, uh, for the actual construction cost of new buildings? How much, how much does that cost, right? How much carbon does that emit into the atmosphere? Uh, It's like, guys, it's not, it's not in addition to it's instead of right? right. Bitcoin replaces this legacy financial system, uh, and, and it's significantly more efficient. It seems like the better route to go is to make things more efficient. And, uh, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how consuming less energy is supposed to be a part of that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Kyle? Well, the, the more efficient, um, mechanisms is kind of how, when you get into developments in the developing world, the, you look at what we, when we first started creating electricity, when we first went to electricity, how do we make it? Well, we used coal. And then we started finding more advantageous and energy rich uh, pieces of uh, 
or uh, resources. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't really using gasoline in vehicles until somebody was collecting it and found out, hey, it's really volatile. But if we can control it, it is very energy dense. That's the reason that we moved to oil in the first place. It was cleaner and processing it down got you to kerosene, which was a cleaner fuel to be able to light homes. Well, the progress from there to now is because industries were allowed to become more efficient. It's the same way with processing. It's supposed to be made to where it becomes more efficient. That's what I think is happening right now with Bitcoin and those the actual stable um, sound money principles of Bitcoin is because it is not set by a federal government. Everybody talks about, oh, we need to get back on the gold standard. Well, gold standard is still not going to be a sound money principle because governments have determined at this point they are regulating the price of gold. So if you get into gold, you're in the same type of scenario as you are with fiat currency. So we're trying to develop, as humans naturally do, find more efficient ways and have ingenuity to be more effective in what they design. Just look at uh, automobile industry. You look at what the Model T, Model A's, what those kinds of vehicles were. We didn't just say, oh, hey, we got a car. We're good. We're good now. We don't need to keep going any further. We've developed it down and now we've got air conditioning. We've got we just continually develop this technology. But when you have a scenario where the government comes in and regulates something like they've done in the financial sector, you look at telephones in the telephone industry. They decided that it was too big, that Ma Bell was too big. And so they decided to step in, break up that company and regulate the telecommunications industry. And for 50 years, they were very adamant about regulating the telephone industry. And the biggest development in that 50 years till like the mid 90s, the only development you had was it went from hanging on a wall and cranking it on a party line to the touchstone phone. You went from rotary to touchstone. That is the that is the innovation that happened in that 50 years. And then in the 30 years since then, we went from uh, having a home phone to almost no one having a home phone because we went from, yeah, we went to where we have a small computer in our pocket that also does phone calls. Like Absolutely. that is what, that's what happens when you allow for innovation, you allow for progress in that direction. And it is going to spur on other avenues of invention that have not been thought of up to this point. That's what right. happened with, that's what's happened with basically every industry that the government has reduced right. regulation to and allowed for innovation. You know, it's interesting. It seems like um, at this point, um, it seems like the, the federal government is trying to take more and more control of more and more things. And it, it's funny, you know, at, at this point, you know, fiat money is, is one of the largest things that affects and impacts human civilization, human culture, um, how we interact and, and uh, communicate with each other, right, via our spending. How do we interact with the market? And it's it's kind of funny because I absolutely agree with you, Kyle, um, where where innovation is allowed to flourish, uh, things get more efficient. We we pro we progress. Right. Right. We progress. 
And uh, it, it's funny because this fiat money hi- inherently heightens people's time preference, which inherently stifles innovation, which which then makes us move backwards in time. Uh, and it, it's it's wild. I mean, it doesn't make any sense that, you know, again, I, I, I've i said this, I don't know how many times this past like week or two weeks, like either A, the federal government has no idea what they're doing. They've got no idea that they're absolutely destroying the world right now with this fiat money or B, and I think this is probably exactly what's happening. They know exactly what they're doing as far as printing money and making up money to pay for this and that and not having to prove work, not having to prove that they've earned that those dollars, those the that money to, to fund whatever it is they're doing. And they've been hiding it for however many years, right? It, it's, it's wild to look back and say, okay, 1971, we officially go off the gold standard completely. We know that previously before that, it was kind of this broken gold standard um, mm-hmm. and, and it was kind of like, it, it was a broken gold standard. And then 1971, it's like, okay, we're no longer gold standard at all. Well, guess what also happens in the mid seventies, 30 year fixed rate mortgages and 401ks. So this is my speculation on this. And I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on this. So we start printing money, inflating the value, inflating the, the cost of all of these things. Right. And so then the federal government says, okay, we either got to say that we're going to do this and just let everybody deal with it, or we could maybe try to hide it. And in the Cantillon effect, right, whoever's closest to the new creation of money is who benefits the most. So how can we hide this and uh, and continue doing what we're doing? So let's 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 start a, a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. So now, you know, before then you save up, you know, save up your money for two, three, four five years, depending on what you're wanting to buy. And then you buy your house. Right. A couple of years you save up. Bang. You buy your house outright. That's your house. Well, then we start printing money. We inflate the values of these things. Now we are no longer able to do that. Now we've got to borrow 30 years of money and 30 years of time to buy a house today, right? Okay, so that's one way of hiding it. Also, in these times, right, in in these inflationary times, the prices of real estate, all of the hard assets, right, real estate and equities, all all of these things, commodities, um, hard monies, real money, uh, they they appreciate in value during these inflationary times. So if we allow people to buy a home today with 30 years of time and money, they can also capture some of the inflation that we're creating. Cool. Okay, what's another way that we can kind of hide this and get people in on it? Uh, how about 401ks? What if we allow people to, uh, what if we incentivize people via a 401k where they can put in pre-tax dollars and capture some of the growth of the, the uh, stock market because they're inflating money, right? And, and that inflated money flees to hard assets, which are equities in some sense. Uh, what if we allow people to put money in the stock market so that they can also participate in this inflation and uh, and we'll hide it, right? So that they think that they're benefiting from it. Oh, we get to put our money in tax-free and then, and then we, uh, we're able to grow and grow and grow and accrue over X amount of years. And then we just pay our taxes later. So many people think that deferring your taxes means, oh, I'm not paying taxes today, so I'm not going to worry about it, right? Uh, again, it's it's that high time preference. As money is eroded over time, as, as we get further and further into this fiat and credit world, we heighten our time preference, meaning that we pref- prefer today significantly more than the future, which makes us not think about the future, which is which mm-hmm. has allowed the federal government to hide what they've been doing since 1971 and I think that what's happening here, again, I'm speculating. 
I think that what's happening here is they're getting to a point where, where they don't have answers. They're, they're having a really difficult time hiding it at this point. Um, I, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was uh, they've got a new press secretary, I believe, for the Biden administration. And this guy comes up and he's pressing this chick about um, how you guys are talking about raising inter- or raising corporate tax rates to combat inflation. How does that have anything to do with inflation? What is that? What was that, that Peter Ducey? You know, it's like they, they don't even know they, they don't even know what they're saying at this point. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, oh, we're doing this to combat that, and they have nothing to do together or to do with each other. It's like, what do you mean? This is so stupid, and it, it's it's ridiculous because uh, you know, if you're participating in the system, if you've uh, you know, if if you're not looking into these things, you, you just got no idea. Well, they're yeah, trying to so, win the election too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like midterms are coming up. I mean, most of it, I think, is about that. And when you're trying to win an election, I mean, you'll lie till you're blue in the face. No, I mean, like yeah. that's got to be a big part of it. I think. I I think that to that point about winning elections, I think what they're seeing right now in the. Um, in the primaries that are going on right now, they're pretty good indicators for turnout in the fall. And what they're seeing in the first 10 states of primaries for Senate and uh, gubernatorial candidates that are going to be on the ballot in in November, um, the number of the amount of turnout uh, of the turnout, 60% of the people coming out to vote in the primaries are Republican and about 40%, just under 40%, or actually, I think it's closer to like 25% because there's about a 15% gap of, of uh, independents. But about 25% of the people coming out are Democrats that are actually voting in primaries. And that's not a good indication. So I would be concerned that they're going to realize that their time is short and they're going to um, start pushing things as quickly as they can before the actual new Congress may come in in January. So my concern would not be that they're going to try and stem the tide, but that they're going to try and push their policies even harder because they realize they're going to lose control of the House and the Senate. Yeah, but to go to some of your points too, Nick, about are they hiding it? How are they hiding it? I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can hide fiat money. It's a pretty dirty, it's a pretty dirty currency. I mean, if we really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. So I feel like there's a lot of ways that they've been able to hide this since 1971. And also like America's ineffectiveness at breaking up monopolies, you know, also kind of feels like a little bit of, uh, I don't know, fake effort. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't really seem like Bill Gates and our government are too out of sync, if you know what I'm saying. The only billionaire I see out of sync is Musk. And he was, as we know, a registered, I guess, a registered Democrat up until recently. So, you know, I mean, this show isn't always about politics, but politics do play a huge role in money nowadays, which is kind of the very large issue is that money is a separate entity of all of that. I mean, money is its own thing. I think my favorite thing now is it's like we I watched that one. Twitter clip I sent you, Nick, where the comedian, it was a comedian. He was like, you know, there's a separation of church and state 
Yeah. And I need to read more about how the separation of church and state began and like all of that. But there needs to be. I did a, show Kyle that video too. It's a really good. Yeah, one. there needs to be a power. I mean, Kyle, would you agree? There needs to be a very uh, powerful separation of church and, or sorry, state and money. Um, I think yeah. money can be looked at as very similar as a religion. Um, it's something that the government should not have any control over what you choose to use or believe or what, what have you. The government is only here to supposed to be more of like a safety net, right? But a safety net yeah. from whom ourselves, like, I don't know. So um, on the religion side, the reason that they put that in place in the constitution and in the, actually the declaration of independence was because there was an official religion in um the British monarch at that time. It was the Church of England. Um, so you were required as a citizen of the crown to participate in that religion. So most of the people that came to the United States, when it was still colonies, they were fleeing to be able to actually exercise their religion in the United States. So the Puritans, the, the people that were fleeing, the Quakers that were fleeing Europe, to come to the United States in this new new era was because they didn't want to um, go to the Church of England, basically. They didn't believe their tenants, things like that. And so they created this uh, mechanism where the government can't establish a religion or force you to participate in one. So I think there is something to be said that post-1971, when we took our money off of the gold standard and we don't have anything backing our currency at this point. And I think all it does is continually to get worse because they're allowing the debt load of the country to just continue to increase. And the way, if you're the one holding the debt, you want the money to inflate because then it costs less of your money to be able to service that debt. Um, but if you're holding the debt and there's deflation, well, you're in trouble. Or if you overspend and there's not a mechanism to um, just create money out of thin air, well, you're in trouble there too. But we just allow our, our country to continue continually deficit spend. And the way they've allowed that to occur is because the petrodollar. Um, and on that point, when we were talking about going off of the gold standard, one of the, one of the areas that I am very specific about um, is the cost of education. The cost of education is a great indicator of what the money supply is doing and what federal government interacting in that manner is uh, producing. So the statistics I've been able to find were through 2016 from 1971. So in 1971, the average four-year college cost, um, yearly cost was $8,734. Um, <laughs> and in, 20, in 2016, it was $20,967 a year. In 1971, they broke it up between men and women. Women were primarily not working as much in 1971, and they are working more now. In 1971, the average uh, average income for women was $14,915 annually. So it was about, if they were working full-time in that manner, making the uh, average income for a woman at that time, 
they could still probably finance and be able to pay for going to college is about 58%, 58.6% of their annual income to go to college. Now the average income for women is $25,901 and the average annual cost is 20,967. So it's 81, almost 81%, 80.9% of that income mm. is what it would cost to go to college. That was in 2016. It's gone up since then, but in 2016, it was about 81%. So if you're spending 81% of your income to go to college, then you absolutely have no money to pay for anything else. Because by the time you pay taxes on that money, yeah. and if it's a W-2 income and your um, income tax comes out of that and your uh, payroll taxes come out of that, you're absolutely at least at 20%. Yeah. On the men's side, uh, in 1971, the average income. So a lot of times there was only a single earner in households in 1971. It was becoming more prominent that there wasn't, but primarily in 1971, you had a single income family. The average income for men in 1971 was $42,757. So to go to college on a full-time income was 20%, 20.4% of your income to go to college. Now, the actual income, the average income for men has actually gone down since 1971. It's $40,445 in 2016. Wow. So to go to a full-time college in 2016 is 51.8% of your of the median income for men. So the cost of tuition for, for college went up 140.1% from 1971 to 2016. Wow. The average income for women went up the median income for women went up by 73.7 percent and the uh, median income for men went down by 5.4 percent wow yet our college tuition continues to accelerate it's uh it, so the buying power of the dollar even in educational opportunities has gone down since 1971 because because of inflation and because of our uh getting off of a gold standard and having to be having to be tied to an actual physical commodity. So. Wow. Isn't this, and to circle all the way back, Nick, when we were talking about how the government has been able to hide things since 1971, we're on drugs, we're on poverty, right? We're on crime. Those, those are examples, but also um, the war on the nuclear family. I mean, hmm. right? I mean, it, it really has been a thing since 1971. And listen, women deserve equal pay in the sense that if you are doing the same job as a man, you deserve to get paid the same, right? Like that, that is, but there aren't a lot of women bricklayers out there, just like there aren't a lot of men who want to be executive assistants. So, I mean, there's obviously, there's a lot that goes into this question, but when people start talking about equal pay, equal rights, all of this stuff, like that is another way, in my opinion, that the government's been able to hide a lot of this money spending in the way that our lives have deteriorated, because you literally need two incomes to pay for a home. You need two incomes to pay for your kids. You need two incomes to go eat out twice a week if you like to go to Chili's. You know what I'm saying? You need two incomes. Um, shoot, shoot, you need three incomes if you want to really eat out in California. So I think that really is like one of that. That's such an interesting statistic that men's wages have gone down and we think that everything is okay just because women's have kind of gone up, but two incomes to support the same lifestyle one income used to support 
and it's all because money is inflating. I mean, you'd think there'd be more of like a revolution going on right now, but I think that's one of the biggest ways they've been able to hide it is that I don't want to say they're convincing women to work, right? Like, but they kind of are. And in the grand scheme of things, they're convincing the nuclear family to feel like they need two incomes. They're convincing the middle class of America who are willing to be duped in a sense, right? Hey, you guys need, uh, so you need your sales job and you need to go be, I mean, you need to go be a dental assistant or you need to go be, uh, you need to go work in a medical office or you need to go be a nurse or you need to go do something. And that's great and everything, right? Like we need women in our workforce. It does, it does bolster our company, does a lot of really good things. But at the same time, there's a lot of like meaningless jobs as well. Um, and sometimes just having a really strong family unit is the best thing we can do for a better, a better world. I mean, really, because if you look at statistics, two parents in a home is really, really important. Um, one of them being able to spend a lot of time with the kids is really, really important. Man or woman, I don't cares. I would love to be a stay-at-home parent if you ask me. Griff, <laughs> have you ever looked? At, have you ever looked into uh, the three indicators? Three indicators that are most likely to indicate on an like eighty or eighty-five percent uh, efficacy rate as to whether or not you're going to end up in the middle class. No. What are the three indicators? Um, Two-parent family graduate high school, don't have a kid before you get married. Yeah. And my only, my only thing to that is now is like, it feels like shooting for middle class, which is fine, right? Owning a home, like you don't have to have huge goals in life. Not everybody needs to be billionaire. Not everybody even needs to try. Not everybody needs to try to be a millionaire. I mean, you should be able to just want to live your life, own your property, you know, have your hobbies, have your wife, have your kids. Um, but the middle class is getting destroyed. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. It feels like there, when you make fiat and you save in fiat and you invest in fiat is one of our guests. Your budget's but broken. It's a bathtub, yeah. right? That just is yeah. literally money is just pouring out of it and you're trying to fill it as fast as you can. But it, when gas is going up as much as this, when, when I would love to just have like, I got a cast iron, you know, I really like a ribeye tonight, I think. But I'm going to tell you right now, a USDA ribeye from my local grocer here is like $40. And a middle American can't afford that. I mean, straight up cannot do that. So So, I don't know what income level is middle America nowadays. And I don't know what kind of lifestyle middle America supports or what the goals of that are. But man, it's getting undercut. Like... Like so I think I think that is probably the indication of why people are fleeing uh, higher priced areas to live. I think that's why you're seeing people move move to middle America. I think that's why um, the ability to, to virtual work from home to commute virtually to a lot of places uh, is allowing that. Um, and I think you'll be interested in the Citadel theory. I think that can open your eyes a little bit to. Um, Absolutely. You want to prelude that one? Citadel theory. What is um, that? About? One of the guys that yeah, get in, get one of the guys that time. you have coming yeah, on will, will uh, kind of dive into that a little bit more. But Citadel theory is basically thinking that you have small local communities of citadels where they help provide for the basic needs of each other, and when times of economic downturn, 
those citadels or those local communities of co-op a type of community involvement, which would be considered a, a form of communism in a local sense, is what sustains that local community and what will sustain them through hard times. So there's a has been a big push for quite some time, especially people moving into rural areas or to suburban areas outside major cities of homesteading. Um, so uh, I have a guy that we work with that does, um, uh, I think he's our uh, one of our dirt work contractors and he tried to homestead, but he tried to do everything on his own. And one of the things Nick and I have talked about previously is the thing, the good thing about capitalism is division of labor, specializ specialization of labor that drives down cost. Well, the same way with the Citadel theory, you get six, seven, eight different families and everybody does one, one thing. You have somebody that raises chickens for eggs. You have one person that raises chickens for meat. You have one person that um, has a pond and has fish and you do, do greenhouses and you do orchards and you do beef and you do pork and you have somebody that has dairy cows and you work together for everybody producing a portion of what's needed to sustain your bare necessities. Um, again, I, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're worried about your first needs, you're not going to be concerned about the production at work. If you don't have food, if you don't have shelter, if you don't have heat, if you don't have a bed to sleep in, then you're not going to be as productive at work. So um, I was having a conversation with somebody earlier this week. They were talking about, oh, they wanted to get investment properties and they wanted to increase their income before they started working on on um, investing in homesteading and becoming in part of that kind of citadel theory. Um, and I encouraged him that with what I see in the market today and what I went through in banking in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, that he should probably invert that. If he's got the extra money now, invest in being more self-sufficient and find other people that are like-minded around you to cooperate with so that you all start building a stockpile and you start having the methods in place that are continually able to be used so that when the market takes a downturn and the value of the buildings and properties start the real down, food. the real food, when that stuff starts coming, when the value of the property start coming down, you've already established yourself where you have a lower cost of living for the same standard of living. And now you have the, in, the resources to invest in those properties to um, facilitate continued growth in that area. So it's really interesting. Do you think over the next 10 years, 20 years per se? I mean, the time frame here is it's it, I think is a really interesting part of the question. Fall of Rome, America, Bitcoin, right? Like that's a, a few buzzwords that I hear a lot, but it's tough to invest in the fall of Rome, right? Like it's a tough, it's yeah. tough to pick, figure where the bottom is here. Um, and that speaks to obviously being self-sufficient in a lot of ways. Um, do you look at Bitcoin? Cause we haven't even really got to the part, Kyle, you're obviously a Bitcoiner. You save a little bit yeah. in Bitcoin, I assume. Um, I do. You believe the hard money aspect of it. Do you view it at, how do you view it when you buy Bitcoin? Do you view it as an investment? Do you view it as a savings account? Do you view it as an insurance policy against the fall of Rome, right? Because if you are self-sufficient 
at least there is now this monetary network where you'd be able to transact with other people um, and still Correct. settle, um, which is really good just to let everybody know the fall of Rome didn't have Bitcoin. If they did, <laughs> like things might've been a little bit better. Um, how do you view Bitcoin when you buy it? Do you, which, which avenue do you uh, choose to pick in your mind when you're like, oh, I'm buying Bitcoin for this reason? It's about the safety network. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that I do that is about um, what I see moving into the future. Um, I have money invested in a, in a variable annuity that I have that I, uh, when I transferred out of a company and moved my 401k, I transferred it in a variable annuity because it was an insurance product that gave me the best bang for my buck long-term allowed me the opportunity to invest in it later in life. Because I just, I accept at this point that social security will absolutely not be around when I get to retirement age. So I'm hedging that bet. Same thing. When I started, when I start seeing this, the market as it is today, I can see in myself and where I'm at, what I can produce, what I'm able to, um, live without and what is necessary for survival. And so there's a gap there and Bitcoin is my hedge for if the monetary system is no longer in place and our, we're having a problem there. There's a secondary network where I have security, where I can transact with, with people and still be able to get the goods that I need to facilitate the continued uh, continued success of my family and myself. Kyle, this this really makes me think of a conversation that I would love to have with Griff here. Um, and we've talked about this and, and, and you'd really opened my eyes to it. And since then, I've talked to several other Bitcoiners and, and what your consensus was that I have, I was not familiar with at the time is the consensus in the Bitcoin community, which is good to know. Um, but this this uh, this global adoption of Bitcoin, um, you know, yeah. I think that there, there's there's kind of conflicting thoughts where I've, I've heard people talk about this top down method. I don't think it's going to be the top-down method. I don't think that it's going to be categorized as legal tender and then everybody's going to start using it. I think it's probably going to be from the bottom up where people start using it and, and it goes up in the layers where smaller individuals use it. Retail you know, shops start using it. Larger companies start using it. Smaller co- countries start using it. And then eventually larger companies or larger countries uh, join in. And Kyle, you, you, uh, you talked, we had a, a really good conversation about this at one point. Um, and you really opened my eyes up to it. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So we see where some countries are are buying in. And when you look at the GDP of different countries, uh, when you centralize when you centralize a currency, uh, look at the euro, for example. Um, it's going to be based on production. So when the euro was uh, established, they have a set mechanism, and it's a set rate of, at which it expands. Uh, you get to Bitcoin and it is a set currency. There's a set, a finite amount. So you're going to be uh, based on adoption. You're going to see that price increase because there's fewer of them and everybody's competing for it. Okay. Um, So in the Euro, you saw overnight where production really shifted to Germany away from all of the other countries and the countries that had a different philosophy and were not producing saw the largest um, discrepancies in their buying power in euros versus their local currency when they went to the euro. So the financial, the financial problems that Greece, Italy, and Spain are, have gone through 
are specifically because they went to the Euro and they participated in that because their, their production rate uh, was much lower than Germany's. And Germany, by creating its, um, by continuing to create and, cre- and produce versus the other countries, that's where the money flew, uh, flowed. So when they would buy goods, it would still go to a, com- a company in Germany or primarily go to a company in Germany. And so you see the same thing in the world. So uh, one of the countries is this, I believe it's the South African Republic, which is like 189 out, or 188 out of 189 uh, in the GDP uh, annually. It's one of the poorest countries that is associated with the United Nations in the world. Um, and it adopted uh, Bitcoin as a legal tender. The reason that the United States and larger countries, El Salvador as well, has also adopted uh, Bitcoin. But the size of those economies versus even a Brazil, um, a Russia, uh, a China, a United States. If the United States tomorrow adopted uh, Bitcoin as a legal tender, it would price every other country out of using it. And if we adopted it, it would isolate us in the global market because it would be too expensive to um, interact with the United States. We, you, there would not be enough money in the world in other countries to be able to purchase Bitcoin and exchange in our medium of exchange. And it would literally tank our economy and put us at a point where nobody would be willing to do business with us. Right. So, so, so think about the, the GDP size, right? I mean, if, if the United States, right, because Griff, we've talked about this a couple of times on a, on a, on a national level. If the United States decided we're going to decide today that we're going to dump all of our capital into Bitcoin because we believe it's the best money for the people. With the, with the supply being inelastic, meaning that it's fixed and it's, it doesn't increase or decrease, uh, <laughs> what's going to happen to the cost of buying Bitcoin? J- let's just say cost, not, not necessarily value, but cost. It's going to go through the roof. And so for these smaller countries that have, you know, uh, you know fractions and fractions and fractions of the GDP of, of, a, of the largest uh, country by GDP, the United States, if they were to then at that point, after the United States dumped in all of its capital, they dumped in all of their capital. Same thing. Same thing would happen um, if if the price goes up for us. The one hundred dollars that that we buy in Bitcoin today, if the price went up, you know, three hundred percent tomorrow, that same one hundred dollars that we would buy tomorrow would be significantly less Bitcoin bought. So if the United States buys in Bitcoin at you know twenty nine thousand where it's at today. And they shoot the price up to two or three or four or five hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, whatever that number would be. The the amount of capital that a smaller country by GDP would be able to dump in would be almost no Bitcoin at all, which to wow. Kyle's point would make it so expensive, A, to buy the currency that everybody is using, A, and B, it would make it so damn expensive to do business with us and trade with us that it would become infeasible. And to Kyle's point, isolating us out of no man's land to where nobody can do business with us in Bitcoin. They would have to go find alternatives. I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that that I agree with. 
I guess my follow-up question would be how would like how, then what's the state of the US dollar? Because why would why is anybody really trading with us now when we totally control the US dollar? We've totally shown that we will do anything to defend it. And on top of that, um, we'll print it whenever we feel like we want to. So why are people continuing to trade with us in U.S. dollars right now? And there's still we, a, there's still a value there. Yeah, I mean, isn't it, how quickly is that? Also, it's also the network effect as well. Yeah, I'm so just saying they're still accepting it, and if we fold, which I don't think the United States would full send into Bitcoin and then want to trade with it with everybody else. I mean, I don't think that would even be the point of them buying it. But I do understand where you're saying, yeah, if we if we went and bought it, a lot of countries would be SOL, right? But like, isn't that also part of the game theory aspect of it? It would take a lot longer for the United States to just go, oh, we're just going to accept Bitcoin now. Every, Bitcoin's legal tender. We're going to implement it everywhere. These smaller countries typically tend to be mm, kind of a little more centralized, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, even El Salvador, he's kind of a we like him, but like, is he not a dictator of, of sorts? It is the same in the South Africa. So they should be able to get it done quicker. So I kind of just think naturally these smaller countries will adopt quicker, but I don't think all of them will. I mean, I do believe there are going to be countries left out of this deal where they, you know, just remain poor even in the Bitcoin standard. Mm-hmm. I don't think Bitcoin is going to level the playing field worldwide, right? Just because some people aren't going to adopt it. Because they're not going to they're not going to see it coming. I mean, some people are going to get left out uh, initially, but then like the hundred year play, there's only 21 million. So as long as you do produce something that you can get Bitcoin for oil, gas, wheat, whatever, like whatever your country produces, at least that way you can still get in because people still need real things. So what I would say is it just takes the U.S. deciding that they're going to allow it to be used as legal tender. Because. The guys that are going to the, um, not the retail investors. We're not talking about retail investors. We're not talking about people with money in 401ks primarily. We're not talking about people with money in the bank um, that are investing in local things. That's not who we're talking about. You have to understand that once it becomes legal tender, the guys that own all the other companies are going to invest in Bitcoin because they can drive the increase in value. Hmm. The State Streets, the Black Rocks, the guys that own trillions of dollars in assets will leverage those assets to buy into Bitcoin at the lowest possible price where it becomes legal tender, and then they will push their other companies they own to accept Bitcoin. And who's once they do that, Bitcoin? do what? Who's selling them that Bitcoin is my question. They are. BlackRock. No, but I'm no. saying, are they just like, are they just going to like collateralize, get a bunch of dollars and try and buy Bitcoin yes. for miners? Yes. Do you think they'll yes. sell that quickly? Yes. Or do you think, what yes. happens when? When you, when you pay them over market price, how many people are going to hold out? Well, for a while, right? But like when you're talking about the price of Bitcoin going up to, I've always thought, yeah, if the pr- the price of Bitcoin, sure, it will go up to a million, a hundred million, a trillion. I mean, like it could go up forever, really. But we're, like, what but we're really talking happen? about two com- we're talking about two companies that in combined assets have nearly as much money in combined assets as GDP of the United States. Right. How much money does it take to just 
But what if that money it's, that they have starts to mean nothing, right? Because if they're buying Bitcoin, they're all the federal. Go- they're all backed by the federal government, and they're the guys that have first access to the money. It, that, in my opinion, if that happens and we start seeing a collapse in that manner, the exact same that, exact same thing that happened in two thousand eight will happen for those guys from the so federal Griff, government. So, Griff, Griff, I have agree their with tent- tentacles in too deep. Yeah, I, I agree. Say, I understand. Will they stop accepting that dollar for their Bitcoin? Yeah. Like, when are people yeah. just gonna be like, okay, thank you, but I still want to keep most of this Bitcoin because, like, I understand yeah. why you want it, right? Like, they still have to yeah. like they have to get it from. Bitcoin. Have you have you seen the have you seen the movie Margin Call? It's interesting about the 2008 uh, housing collapse. Okay, Margin Call is a is a movie. I Big believe short. It's in, no, it's Margin Call. The Big Short is about the, the 2008 thing. housing collapse, but it is the second tier that actually oh, occurred. Wow. So the first tier that occurred, look at Margin Call, is basically like inside the company that was the main backer of all these. Um, equity-backed securities that did a fire sale to remove it from their books. They were able to clear those things from their books at like 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, and then the market tanked. And they sold it to people that were buying it, that were hesitant to buy it, but took it anyway because they could get it at a value. So the opposite can also be true. Hey, I don't know that the dollar is going to be worth it, but you're paying me 50% higher than market value. Sure. I'm going to go ahead and sell and then hedge my bets. That's the same thing that's happening right now with BlackRock. BlackRock's buying up these properties. I think it's one of the things that's that's causing the increase in housing values is because they're buying up all these properties and then turning around and, and leasing them. Yeah, and they could care less but what they paying, buy them for as long as they can get it for cheap money. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And they're, but they're also paying, they're paying over market value to price the individual investor out of purchasing. Although you would say what BlackRock is doing currently is something in a Bitcoin standard, they would not be able, I mean, they just simply would not be able to do at not, at least not at the rate at which they're doing it. It would be a massive, Correct. but they would do, they would do, a, right now. they would have advanced, in my opinion, they would have advanced notice because if you look at the, especially in this administration currently. BlackRock has three people that are the primary financial advisors to the president, the vice president, and the, the um, I believe it's the secretary of state. The primary financial advisors in the cabinet are executives from BlackRock. So they would have advance notice before this starts occurring. They would start capitalizing assets to have cash on hand that once it came out, they would they buy up as much as they could. Sure. Okay. So, Griff, Griff. So, so this is this is the organizations. I want to just ask. I'm like, well, if BlackRock has power, then how much power does the World Economic Forum have? How much power does the Trilateral Commission have? I mean, like, there is in this fiat standard. We were man looping this again all the way back to that. How do they hide it? We don't even really know who has all all this. Correct. I mean, honestly, like we we do speculate. Um, BlackRock buying all of these homes is is obviously, I guess, we could say impressive more scary right because homes are one of those things that have intrinsic value that nick had a really good spiel about because it's like you can buy homes they're always going to be needed though which is why there's am i they're obviously so closely tied with inflation as an asset and just goes up through these inflationary times because people want somewhere to live i mean like that's that's really it so they're buying a a really 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 um 
personal commodity at a really, really fast rate. But I mean, wouldn't I mean, there's got to be a lot more factors at play in terms of people trying to buy a Bitcoin, which is why I mean, there's only 21 Bitcoins, always one Bitcoin, right? Like they're going to have a tough time at some point pouring into the Bitcoin network because in my opinion, it feels like Bitcoiners are a little bit more intelligent than really any other anybody else who's ever held such a finite asset before that most people who own it at a large quantity really understand why they own it so i kind of i mean like i think the price of bitcoin absolutely the price of bitcoin is going to go up good for us right like we bought it so early yeah it's it's obviously going to go up but what does that really mean i think is my question because it's like what is it going to mean if the dollar has no purchasing power um yep Bitcoin is 10 million a Bitcoin or something like that. At what point does it just like it dollar? Yeah. Oh, you don't like so, your credit. No good here. Like the Star Wars scene or whatnot. That's kind of kind of bridging those two thought processes. Because Griff, I agree with you. And Kyle, I also agree with you. So um, and, and this is this is my thought here. So Kyle, on your side, if if these larger players can front run the market, mm-hmm. then people will absolutely accept a ton of dollars for their Bitcoin. Griff, I also agree with you in the sense that if the dollar's not worth anything, well, why would I give up something that's absolutely scarce and worth unlimited amounts of money? Why would I give that up for something that's worth nothing? Um, so I think, Griff, and this is another interesting piece to tie in. Griff, what you just said, I think is absolutely true in that Bitcoiners, for the most part, there's plenty out there that don't know why they own, but you know, for you and I and, and Kyle, like we, we I own Bitcoin because I believe that it is significantly more valuable than dollars. And I think that there are inherent fundamental issues with the dollar system that we operate in today, the fiat money system that we operate in today. So absolutely, I've got my price right. If if somebody wants to offer me a quadrillion dollars for my Bitcoin. OK, right now, I would I would probably take some money for that. Right. But right. or some dollars for that. Um, mm-hmm. however, I'd probably go right back in and I'd probably just put it right back into Bitcoin, but, so, so Kyle, so here's the interesting piece about this. It's not like you just go to the Bitcoin store and you buy it off the shelf. Every Bitcoin yeah. that is out there is owned. It's owned by someone, whether that's a miner or an individual or, or a corporation, whatever, whoever it's owned by, it's owned by someone. So whenever you buy Bitcoin, It's not you're not buying it off the shelf. You have to exchange some other currency for some with someone else for their Bitcoin. So somebody else has to has to give you their Bitcoin uh, in return for your, I would say, fiat currency at this point. Um, That being said, though, if these larger corporations or anybody really can front run the market and, and buy before these huge announcements are made, which is insider trading, right? Um, then, then absolutely, people would accept um, a ton of uh, extra extra money over asking price, over market value for their Bitcoin. But at the same time, you have kind of a dilemma here because uh, the the Bitcoin that is out there is owned by Bitcoiners primarily that realize the value of Bitcoin and see the issues of the future of the dollar. Because of their ability to see those things, how many um, how many people do you think own Bitcoin or are miners for Bitcoin that are associated with the World Economic Forum or BlackRock or State Street? 
that would be my I'm that'd sure be my I'm question. Sure I'm sure there are that would be a question. And how much Bitcoin does the U.S. government already own? That's another fair question. Um, and I, I, I think there's enough smart people um, in these, you know, large institutions that own a lot of dollars. Right. I think there's a lot of smart people in them that go, hey, listen, like, you know, just in case it catches on, like, let's quietly buy some in, which I I tend to think is why you see it so tightly coupled with like the S&P. And we've seen this capitulation ever since we hit the all-time high. Man, we've been going between like what, like upper twenties, and we hit all-time high of like sixty-nine thousand a couple times. I think a lot of what's been playing with Bitcoin's price action is that they don't want it to blow up yet. They're still trying to buy in for this really, really cheap price, and there are still a lot of weak hands in Bitcoin. I mean, like there's still crypto is still a thing. So as long as crypto is a thing, there's still going to be weak hands in Bitcoin because I personally have family members who I've gotten to buy a full Bitcoin, right? They have more money than me. They have 401. They've worked a long time. I'm like, listen, I think it's a great investment. I think you should probably just at least move enough money to get one Bitcoin uh, and hold it forever. Do they really know why they have it? No. So every single time it drops or every single time uh jamie diamond says that it's like owning a pet rock or something like that or bill gates is like oh like bitcoin doesn't have any value yeah they ask or they're worried or they want to sell it and so you know what i mean at the end of the day you you get bitcoin at the price you'd like kind of deserve it at and that means if you buy it early and sell it and then you want to go buy it back again later you deserve it at that price um i mean i just i don't know who's buying it i guess per se big entity wise, but I, I kind of do feel like over the course of the last, what is it, a couple years now that it's been capitulating at this price or a year and a half, maybe it's been capitulating at this price a little bit. Um, I mean, I kind of think that has definitely something to do with it because Bitcoin really shouldn't be all that much tied in with these markets. I mean, like, isn't it available to be traded on a commodities market? Um, is it? I think, I think there's some EF. I think there's some EF. I just don't think enough with... people know how to buy it. You know what I'm saying? Like enough people don't know how to just get their Bitcoin without having to deal with exchanges, without having to deal with all the BS. They don't I, understand. I that. think the I think the most of the EFTs and the major investors currently in the United States that are investing in it are not actually buying Bitcoin. They're buying derivatives. They're buying like, yeah, which I think is like the dumbest thing you can do personally, just because You're it's like. Maybe. Yeah, I was gonna say they're, they're buying they're buying the futures. They're not actually so so in in the United right. States they, they do have ETFs uh, in in the other parts of the There's world that are spot ETFs, I believe. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. here in the United States, we don't have any spot ETFs. Um, right. So the the ETFs that there are are futures contracts on Bitcoin, which again is just it's fiat. It's fiat. This fiat mindset trying to trying to get its way into Bitcoin. I mean, this derivatives are are. Again, Kyle, we talked about it earlier. It's it's these false signals, these al- yep. uh, these altered realities that people are are um, are operating on. Right? Whenever uh, whenever the whenever the government creates money, they create artificial signals in the market as to what is reality. They distort reality. And you know, I use the example right where I had my AirPods and Griff. I told you this. I had my AirPods, my phone, my iPad, my laptop. If I own my AirPods outright and then I go to the bank and I say, hey, I want to leverage this asset, my AirPods, to buy my phone. Okay, great. Let's do that. We, we think that the value of your AirPods are going to hold. 
and we'll use that to collateralize and you can get, you know, 20% loan to value or 80% loan to value, whatever, whatever it is. Right. And now I've got my phone, but my phone, I only own because I've collateralized my AirPods. But then I take my phone and I do the same thing. I collateralize it to buy my iPad. And then I collateralize my iPad to buy my laptop and so on and so forth to where all of this artificial, all of these artificial signals have been made in, in the, uh, in the market that are only backed by one thing, right? This is exactly what happened. Um, or I say not exactly, but something similar to what happened in 2008, whenever all of these bad loans were given out and then they were packaged together in mortgage backed securities and said, Hey, these are great investments. And then the big banks bottom, and then the next bank above that bottom and then the next bank above that bottom, whatever the whole process. Right. And it was all collateralized on something that was maybe not quite as valuable as the very end product. Right. There was absolutely not as valuable as what they claimed it was. Um, so that is an, um, a little bit uh, not as correct, I guess. So you're saying 80% uh, loan to value as you collateralize. So fractional reserve banking actually uh, would be a little different than that, that mm-hmm. the way they've created these systems is the Federal Reserve basically holds a dollar and then they or had until recently, until uh, April of 2020, uh, they had said, if you have a dollar in deposit, then you can lend like six dollars for every dollar you have in deposit. Uh, and so now on your balance sheet, you have six dollars. And so then if you're the next bank up, if you're the you're investing in another entity where you've created six dollars because you have a dollar in, in uh, savings that you've loaned out. Now that next bank has taken that $6 you've given them and now turned that $6 into $36. And so that cycle cycles up and up and up. In April of 2020, as part of the CARES Act, they removed the collateralization requirement on banking. No reserve so, requirement. No reserve requirements. They have not rescinded that order yet. So a bank at this point uh, does not require yeah. cash on deposit to lend money. No, no reserve requirements to be in lending currently. We don't really and they change because it's digital now, right? I mean, that's really most of the reason why. Uh, no, no bank has current. No bank has enough currency in their deposit to cover the amount that's on their books. None, zero. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of just as can we short all banks for like the remainder of time? Might yeah, be. buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Buying yeah, Bitcoin is one of the ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's so funny. Like, yeah, I mean, we just talked about that. That's a failing system, right? I mean, it's failing. Yes, it's because it was a failing system and it was not allowed to it, market forces were not allowed to work in 2008. Market forces were not allowed to work. Yep. They were not allowed. They did not. They did not allow the market to uh, break down in the manner that it should have in a natural uh, capitalist market. In a capitalist market, in that manner, you have a point where all of these larger banks are the are the biggest problem because they were the main drivers behind the issue, and they were um, overcapitalized, and they should have been broken up into divisions allowed to be bought by smaller players in the market 
to disperse that market. Um, the companies that will run better than them would have been able to accumulate the pieces to grow their business, to be able to expand. And you would have had a bunch of regional banks instead of a central bank of America, Merrill Lynch, things like that. You would have been allowed to have a bunch more larger, better run, uh, more fiscally responsible regional banks. And because we, said, oh, they're too big to fail, and we bailed them out, uh, the federal government decided that they were going to continue to incentivize them to continue to not participate in manners that were sound financially. Same thing happened previously. Well, they they uh, needed to stimulate the market, right, to try to get too big to fail. Why? Well, I don't think they needed to, but that's just kind of what they did. They definitely didn't need to, just like we didn't really need Social Security. It's a a downturn in the market is good periodically, and it is required to continue to have a sound financial and investment system. Um, If the economy is not allowed to contract to to wean out improperly run or, or poorly run businesses, if it's not allowed to do that, then you're never going to have a the financial markets or the market forces are not going to be allowed to impact the actual market. So you've created a, a false market that at, at any point beyond that, manipulating a market that is not indicative of market forces. Absolutely. So if you don't allow it to, if you don't allow it to correct then you've accepted that you're going to continue to manipulate that market in perpetuity. Cause the longer Which, you go between, yeah. the longer you go between recessions, the worse than the, the next recession is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Griff and I were kind of talking about this the other day, you know, like we use the example, like if you're, if you're uh, you know, Griff and I, we were college athletes, right? Uh, the mm-hmm. best thing that we can do for our health is to stay in routines where we're working out, we're eating good food, we're drinking enough water, that's what best preserves our health over time. The further right. we get away from those routines and eating good food and working out and drinking enough water, the the bigger the bigger it's going or the the larger the issue and more difficult it's going to be to get back to where we were, uh, it, it, exacerbating the issue and making it more and more difficult to deal with once we do deal with it. Exactly what you're saying. But even in even in the workout, there's a you can't be doing max effort and max weight all the time or you will hurt yourself. There is a crash coming in that point where you are maxing out the potential of your body and your muscles at all times. Runners do the same thing. You don't run the marathoner. You're not going to run the full amount of distance that you're supposed to run all the time. You're going to do increments. You're going to cycle up in distance and down in distance and up in, up in intensity and down in intensity so that it's allowing your muscles to contract, realize the gains that you've made, and then be able to extend your maxes higher. But if you're not allowed to cycle down, then you put Mm. yourself in a position to get hurt. And the same thing is true about our markets. If we don't allow for a cycle down where there's a lower yielding time or even a loss at times, a contraction of the market to a certain extent, then we're not going to have the capacity to continue to expand. 
because yeah. we've basically taken this rubber band and we just keep stretching it, stretching it, stretching it. At some point it breaks, but if you allow it to contract, you can continue to expand it. But we just continue to have our market where we're just pushing it as high and high and high and high and high and high, and high, and high as we can get it. But we're not allowing for companies that are operating poorly with poor fiscal policies to go out of the market. We're not allowing we're not allowing the consumer to have the decision on what to do. We're not having, we're not allowing the consumer to look at how people are faring in hard times to determine who is best to invest their money in. Yep. Man, this is uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Kyle. It has been, uh, it's been interesting to, to finally get you and Griff together. Uh, Cause I know that we've had these conversations over and over and over again. And uh, they're so good every time we have them. Um, Griff, do you have any uh, any final thoughts here? We've been on for we're, we're at an hour and forty minutes here, so this is going to be a, a good little chunk. No, I uh, after every one of these episodes, I am just more and more and more thankful that I dollar cost average myself out of the fiat system and into Bitcoin with my savings. Um, and I further do not care about the price of it. And to say one more thing. I'm so tired of people like, you know how many people I've had in like the last two weeks like, oh, are you okay? Oh, are the Bitcoin's dropping. Oh my God. I'm, just like, I'm like, are you okay? I'm like, what happens when like, I'm like, seriously, because like with Bitcoin's volatility, we've seen it go down and then take that a hundred percent increase to go right back up. Right. Like that's, it's a very low, I mean, it's not even a trillion dollar asset. So really like, as long as you believe in the network and the strength of it, the price really does not matter right now. You are buying it for as cheap as it is ever going to be, whether it was 8,000 or 2,000 or 17,000, 69,000, they're all cheap numbers, right? What are you going to do when, uh, I don't know, your banking stocks or your bonds for, yeah, how, how about your bonds go down 70 or 50%? They will never get back up to the all-time highs that you had originally bought them at. And so, I don't know, I ask people who ask me that question, I'm like, are you okay? Are you going to be fine? Are you going to make it through this winter? Because I'm fine. I have Bitcoin. I'm not worried about it. Thank you very much. So I think it's I think it's interesting that people ask you that. If you look at that graph of or the recent indication of the market of Bitcoin, if you would if you would show somebody a similar um, trend in another stock that's not Bitcoin, they would tell you that it is testing a floor of the market. Yeah. So the continual drop down and bounce back up and drop down and bounce back up. Usually when you get to two or three cycles like that and it has hit a price that is very consistent, it's yeah. testing a floor. And so that is the market where once it gets down to that, people are continuing to invest more and more money. So yes. if that's true, you're setting a standard there where that's as low as Bitcoin is going to get again. It's not going to it, it is not trending to where it is going to fall below that point ever again in history. And it's, there's quite a bit of on-chain analytics that show a liquid supply of Bitcoin as well. So this recession where everything else goes, you know, to the, to the shitter, I mean, like to 1971 levels. I mean, we're really going to I mean, in in this market crash that we're kind of entering that this could be a slow, painful death or it could be a flat. I mean, who knows how this is going to happen? We're going to really truly see how much the American economy has grown, right? Because most of this has been fake since 1971. So where are we really at? I guess we're going to figure it out. 
But with Bitcoin speaking, we you can literally look at on-chain statistics and see how many wallets have literally just held their Bitcoin for over a year, two years, three years. Yeah. They don't care about the price. They're holding it for obviously maybe many of the reasons we're talking about on our podcast. And so I think this recession is going to be a really great test um, of Bitcoin's resilience versus stocks, bonds, um, your home, your housing prices. Because, you know, a lot of people bought these homes as investments and that's not really what you should be in it all for. If you're looking at a home as an investment, you should probably be renting that deal out or flipping it super fast or something of that nature. Right. So you shouldn't always count on your house to appreciate 100 percent every five years. That just isn't realistic. Um, and it's really not good for the rest of the world, too. So um, I don't know. It's a great time to be a Bitcoiner, in my opinion, because I think I really think that Bitcoin is going to be the most resilient asset uh, that you can buy, right, with fiat over the next two years. I guess that would be my prediction. This is where you're going to see Bitcoin's decoupling because there's only so much money that really will leave this system. A lot of it really is pretty liquid at this point. People who really own it, I'm not sure what level that is or what price that would put it at, but I think somebody did the math and it's like somewhere in the 20s. So it'd be interesting to see if Bitcoin ever got out of the 20s. That would be a little bit interesting, but it's going to be tough to get it out of there. I don't know. I'd agree. I don't I'd care. Agree with I'm, that. Holding forever, guys. I'm holding it for the rest of my life. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not selling my Bitcoin ever. And if it goes to zero, then I'll buy all 21 million. Okay. And then I'll be like, you know what? I might've been wrong, but at least I own it all now. Right. That'd be great. <laughs> Man. People, are funny. People are funny because, you know, this stuff is personal, right? Finances are super personal to everybody. Everybody wants to be uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. Everybody would love to be the greatest investors ever and know everything all the time and they never make mistakes. But the only thing that you should really care about is learning and like finding, you know, problem solving, finding new information. Uh, and I think uh, Bitcoin is another really good tool for that because once you get into Bitcoin, you really do just start learning a lot of these things. And Kyle really do thank you for coming on to the episode. I think Kyle, you really might be one of the most straight up intelligent people we've had on this podcast. I think Please. yet your knowledge Absolutely. about really everything is very well spoken. I'm not sure there's one topic you don't know something about, which is a little bit scary. You might be reading way more than me, so I don't know. <laughs> it's been really cool to have you on. I, uh, I don't know if Nick has any so, closing thoughts now, but this has been a good episode. So I have always uh, adhered to a um, saying. Um, yeah, I picked it up when I was younger. I always like to learn stuff, but there is a phrase that people say now, which is actually not the correct phrase. They say uh, jack of all trades, master of none. But the actual phrase is jack of all trades, master of one. And the one thing that I've tried to master is personal finance. Uh, for me personally, that's what drove me into accounting from uh, engineering. Um, but I like to be kind of well-versed in what all I can do. Um, Nick can kind of attest to this a little bit because um, the house that you see behind me, uh, this is something that I've been working on. Like I physically built this house uh starting last july so wow yeah absolutely he, yeah he's Kyle, not he's it is uh, he's master of like five nick i always have to ask for advice and help on on a bunch of different areas but yeah i i do try to be 
uh, plugged in and, and covering a bunch of different areas because I think they're all, all very well interconnected. Uh, and I think how things uh, interact in one area are definitely going to impact others. Uh, so I try to have a good understanding of, of a bunch of different areas. So, Absolutely. Well, Kyle, it has been a ton of fun, man. I'm excited to get this one out to the public. It'll be live next week. Um, man, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. I might have Thanks to so much. sprinkle this one out into two episodes, like sprinkle it out maybe early next week and like later in the week, you know? I don't know. I leave those things up to me. <laughs> All right, Kyle, you have a great rest of your Loved weekend. It, man. And I will see you on Monday morning. Yeah. Wow. Griff, how about that, huh? Yeah, if you're in close proximity to that guy, Nick, your your excuses are, like, very few and far between. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, whether it be personal finance, taxes, uh, the global landscape, um, Kyle doesn't have a Twitter, right? Like he's not really a huge internet personality. He, he does have a Twitter, but I don't know that he's super active on it. Um, I mean, he should, so. he should try. I think, I think he should put some, some stuff. Maybe you can let him know on Monday that maybe we could, I mean, all in all, like, you know, 40 average listeners we have now, and we do appreciate all you guys. You should follow yeah. Kyle. That was really, I, I don't know what you guys would all think. Um, but that was a really good episode, and he was a very, very, very intelligent um, guest, and it was very cool to get his kind of his brain on from the we talked about the petrodollar to making energy more efficient to Citadel theory to Maslow's hierarchy to fractional reserve banking explained on a very, very good level. Um, global adoption. Global adoption. How he? Yeah, I mean, like so many things, and I guess the only thing that we really differed on is that. Um, you know, when this Bitcoin price goes up, you know, I just think, I think, I think COVID has sped it up. I think like these high inflation rates have sped up what has happened yeah. to the dollar, right? Like I think Bitcoin was made to catch kind of a slow death of the dollar, but because our government is so um, smart, it's going to be more of a quick death. In my opinion, I think the dollar is going to die relatively quickly. And I think that's kind of the only part that me and him weren't seeing super eye to eye on. But man, I agreed pretty much with everything else he was saying. Um, and shoot, and what we didn't agree on, it wasn't like he was lacking information or conviction or facts or anything of that nature. So really good guess. Absolutely. Well, guys, we appreciate you listening to another episode. Come check us out on Twitter down here at Nick and Griff Show. Um, we are always wanting to bring on new guests and uh, fully round out our perspectives with new perspectives. Um, we have still got more guests coming in the, in the, in the weeks to come. Excited to have uh, new guests, excited to go back and watch these episodes. I mean, uh, putting these, putting these t- episodes together and getting them uploaded, I, I typically tend to watch them once or twice over. Um, and it's so fun to go back and, and catch all the little pieces that maybe you don't remember at this point sitting here right now. Um, but yeah, come hit us on Twitter at Nick and Griff show. Um, we are on all the major platforms. If you guys are listening right now, you're probably listening on Spotify or Apple podcast. Those are two of the major listening platforms that we've got, um, that are the, that are the most popular anyways. And we've also got video on YouTube. So come check out YouTube. It is the Nick and Griff show on YouTube as well. So, uh, thank you guys for listening to another episode and we will see you next Peace.